When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Up. This week's guest is Stan Grant. I grew up watching him on TV and listening to him bring us the nightly news and talk about the most important topics of the day. Since that time, he's worked at CNN, across the world, in the Middle East and all over, and he's also written these best-selling books about his experience of being an Indigenous Australian man. It's such a pleasure to have Stan in the studio because he's written another book called Australia Day. So since he published his first memoir in 2015, which was called Talking to My Country, he's been crisscrossing Australia to talk about racism and how it is unfortunately at the heart of our story. I spoke to Stan about his newest book, Australia Day. We talk about the philosophers that have guided and shaped his beliefs his Indigenous struggle for belonging and identity in Australia, and his longing to reconnect with his childhood self, something that seems to never go away. I hope you enjoy this episode. In your book, Australia Day, which is what we're here to talk about, but many other things, I loved the philosophy that's woven throughout. And there are all these philosophers in there that I've never quite understood what they stood for. I think Nietzsche really speaks to this age, the sense of being unmoored, the sense that we are disconnected, that it is uh, on almost a survival of the fittest now. You know, he, he, he shone a light into the limits, as he saw them, of liberalism or religion and the slave morality that he saw from that. He sort of abhorred that weakness in a sense. Uh, and I think we're starting to see p- politically in our world today a lot of the things that, that Nietzsche spoke about. And then Immanuel Kant is another philosopher that I focus on a lot in there. If Nietzsche, Nietzsche and Kant are sort of in, a, in an arm wrestle in a, in a sense is that you know, Nietzsche can so easily be co-opted by arch-nationalists and and the Nazis really embraced a lot of his ideas, Um, whereas Immanuel Kant was about the universality of humanity and was seen as being one of the the sort of um, foundational thinkers of of cosmopolitanism and the sense that we share more in common than that 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 divides us. And I, I loved, I find a lot of hope and inspiration in someone like Immanuel Kant, but when I read Nietzsche, I sort of stare into the harsh and dark reality of the world. Into the abyss. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. It also feels that because these, well, they are all men, are dead, Mm. we're able to 
analyse their words and not cancel them mm. for some of the things they thought. Mm. And it feels a lot. Well, they were people of their times too, weren't they? You know, yes, of, exactly. They were writing against their times and for their times. I mean, you know, and they're, they're people of incredible um, contradiction. Kant, who spoke about the universality of humanity, um, was also someone who made some appallingly racist comments, you know, about Africans and black people being stupid. And uh, um, But, I mean, what, in a sense, what would you expect coming from that age? Um, they're reflecting their age, but they're also looking beyond it. And so I sort of try to, to take them from those times, but take those ideas and apply them to where we are now. And, and probably the most important idea that I took from Hegel was the, um, the, the, the three-stage sort of dialectic that he believed drove history, and that was the, you know, that all of history is a search for recognition and freedom until we end up in the, what he saw as the ethical state, and the state was the best mechanism for recognising the inherent freedom of people, um, where master and slave can live in the full recognition of each other rather than in relationships of power and dependence. I wanted to come to this book with a philosophical framework that I thought spoke to my own, uh, the way I see the world, my own place in the world, to come to terms with the history that I, my family have lived through and my country has lived through, but also to try to set that against the big changes in our society now. And to do that without some philosophical roadmap would be to be stumbling in the dark for me. The philosophy was the light that allowed me to search into those darkest corners of who we are and who we are as a people, who I am as a human being, what it is to belong to a nation and what it is to belong to a world. Well, just like they were men of their time, how exactly are you a man of this time? I think because I'm living through it, and I think we're all sort of shaped and uh, we, we are all a reflection of the times that we live in. So I'm engaged in, um, in, in asking the questions that I think are the, the salient questions of our age. And I've also been um, fortunate to have lived this change. So on the one hand, you have that post-Cold War period, the end of history and the triumph of liberal democracy. But very quickly against that, uh, a resurgence of all the things that we thought we'd vanquished um, tribalism, sectarianism, hypernationalism, populism, tribal, you know, all of these things that have shaped the world post-Cold War. And we very quickly lurched into the conflicts of identity, the, the genocide in Rwanda, the conflict in the Balkans, the Islamic, uh, you know, rise of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the attacks on 9-11, the rise of, of China and and China with its own sense of history and destiny um, and a very different model to liberal democracy, more of an authoritarian capitalist model. So as a reporter, my job was to cover these things. I covered the wars. I lived in China. I saw the big change. And all of those things have, have opened up a window onto my own country. So I've lived through those times and I've wrestled with those times and written about those times. And in Australia Day, it's a, an attempt to try to reflect on all of that change and what does it say to our enduring struggle in Australia. And for me, as an Aboriginal Australian, but an Aboriginal Australian with European heritage as well, I'm at the crosshairs of that. So if those big questions of liberalism, uh, if those big questions of democracy 
are in play in Australia as they are in other parts of the world. They sort of coalesce around this question of Australia Day. What are we celebrating? What does it represent? What is it to be an Australian? How do we reckon with our history? And all of those things on both sides live through me. So I think I'm a a physical manifestation or representation of those struggles as well. So I'm not just an observer. I feel it very deeply as a participant in someone whose life has been shaped by these forces and now trying to to understand it and find a way through it. And you describe it as being a war within yourself often. Mm, mm. Does a that, battle, you know, a, it's a battle. A it's battle a within yeah. these two sides yeah, of yeah, yourself. In the book you also mention that your father, you observed, never had a struggle about his identity. No, well, he lived in different times and, um, you know, it was a, the period that he was sort of born and lived in was um, the height of the, the segregation period and Aboriginal people very much segregated from the rest of Australia. He's, both of his parents um, were Adjuri people. Um, he was raised uh, in a Wiradjuri culture, very sure of who he was, where he was from, who he was related to, what his stories were. That gave him a very sure footing in the world. But, in, you know, and, and that's part of me too, but inevitably we're not our parents. We moved, you know, we move on from where our parents' journey ends. Um, and, and my sense of my place in the world is inevitably different to his. So while he has a, a sense of, of surety, uh, um, an assuredness about what sits at the core of his being, um, I don't necessarily have that. I have a sense of belonging, um, but I also have a sense of seeking and yearning and exploring beyond that. And I have, inevitably, I ask different questions of myself and my children will ask very different questions of themselves than what I have. They've grown up primarily as international kids, moving around the world and experiencing the world in ways that I could never have imagined when I was a boy. So I think we're all very, very different. But for my father he doesn't have to ask too many more questions about what it is to belong in the world um, because he emerged out of a society and an historical period where that was very much either it was very much defined for him and defined by him. You mentioned going overseas mm. and that you have kids that are very international. I'm wondering about that you mentioned this looking back at Australia and mm. somehow from a great distance you can see and maybe think about your country in a mm. different way. And I've had the same experience because I've been away for yes. 11 years and looking back. And then you mentioned James Baldwin a yes. lot in the book. Um, yes. And I re- remembered that he had to go to Paris. Yeah, Remember yeah. the freedom and the ability to just be a yeah. man? yeah. Hey, look, Baldwin spoke to me at a very young age. You know, I stumbled onto. Uh, I was I was always a reader, and you know, I didn't have a classical education because my parents were itinerant. My father was a, a labourer, and we moved wherever work was. And Dad didn't want us to be under the the heavy hand of the state. You know, he wasn't going to take anything from the government. He wanted to make his own way in the world because he knew what you know the risks of that um, for Aboriginal people. So. We moved around a lot and I didn't have that classical sort of education. I never really went to school with any sort of um, with any sort of regularity until I was about 14 years old. But um, but I was always a reader and I stumbled onto Baldwin when I may have been 13 or 14. I think it was at a library and I saw a copy of this book, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And I loved 
the song, you know, <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I, I thought, I wonder what this is about. And I picked it up and read it. And of course it spoke so deeply to me because he was talking about something that I'd experienced in my life, that sense of being an outsider, um, raised in the church, a black church. And I was raised very much in an Aboriginal church. You know, the church was central to Aboriginal existence in New South Wales and the places that, that I lived. Um, he told stories of human beings who were black, who weren't interpreted by other people. They were real life human beings with all the foibles of other human beings. And, and there, you know, it was a world that was very known to me. And, and it spoke very, very deeply to me. And then later, as I sort of explored more about James Baldwin, I, I found that, you know, there was so much of how he saw the world and so much of his own personal story that sort of married with mine, particularly this idea of exile. And, uh, you know, he said he went to Paris because he did not want to be a Negro, let alone a Negro writer. And by that he meant, obviously, he was black. He didn't want to be what other people thought black was black or white. He didn't want other people to impose their ideas of identity upon him. Uh, there is this idea that, you know, um, you can't write universal stories because we don't live universal lives. We do. We do fundamentally live universal lives. We feel uh, the, the desire for love and freedom are universal. I've found that everywhere. And so that's what Baldwin sort of looked for. And, um, and I found that when I went overseas. And a lot of the writers that I've been inspired by have been people who live with a sense of exile. James Joyce, of course, you know, who uh, left Ireland to live in Europe to write about Ireland. That beautiful line in um, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man where, you know, Davin, the, the, the character who's essentially his alter ego, is, his mother is, is packing his bag as he's about to leave Ireland and he says that he, he went in search of the unconstructed conscience of my race. What a beautiful idea that you will go and you will escape other people's ideas of what it is to be black or, or Irish or Catholic or to live with a sense of historical grievance or vengeance or resentment to find an unconstructed conscience of who you are and who your people could be. And I, I was really moved by those sorts of writers. And then when I went overseas, I found that for the first time in my life, I knew what it was to be an Australian in a way that I'd never understood here because I was never allowed to understand. Here, history hung so heavily that every relationship, every conversation I had, I felt the weight of history sort of looming over my shoulder. And then when I went overseas, I found I had to find a way of explaining myself to the world that, that other people could relate to. And that, that was about being an Australian. And I found that I met other Australians overseas who were like me. And I found a kinship with them that I hadn't found in my own country. We laughed at the same jokes and we knew what it was like to, you know, suck on an orange ice block, and, you know, <laughs> have fish and chips with vinegar and a long, hot summer holiday and, you know, what, what salty water felt like and all of these touchstones about our lives that we shared in, in common. And, uh, and I realised that 200 years works, it's, it's magic. You become something. You become a new people despite all of your differences. And, uh, you know, it gave me a vantage point on myself and a vantage point on my country that I hadn't had when I lived here. And I think that's what those those seeking, searching writers um, also found. You also mentioned in the book that certain people have the, I guess, the privilege of nostalgia Yeah. in a way that you didn't feel you had as an Indigenous Australian. Can you mm. talk more about that? Because we're in this time, right, of nostalgia, whether yeah. it's 
pickling things or whatever, um, and it's influencing our politics and mm. this. In, in often very, very dangerous Yeah, ways. yearning for the past. There's a militant nostalgia, I think, that we see in our world now. This idea that there was a glorious age that uh, we can recapture and that there was a moment when someone did us wrong. There's an historical grievance and a, a vengeance and a resentment that shapes our identities. I mean, that's the language of our time. Xi Jinping talks to the Chinese people and always reminds them of what he calls the 100 years of humiliation, what those foreigners did to us. Vladimir Putin laments the end of the Soviet empire as the great catastrophe of the 20th century. Recep Tayyip Erdogan in, in Turkey talks about the Ottoman empire as this lost golden age. And Islamic State talk about reclaiming the caliphate. And Donald Trump wants to make America great again. They're all the same narrative. It's the same story. It's the shipwrecked mind that can't see a future. You know, it's clinging to the debris of the past constantly. And, and, and I... I was very aware of that in my own life. and You know, there is a privilege of nostalgia when you can look back and you can see that the world makes sense to you or that your world uh, and the historical world nurtured you. I look back and I see a very fraught history. My nostalgia is a nostalgia of pain and what Seslov Milos, the Polish Nobel laureate called the memory of wounds. You know, that's my nostalgia. And I don't hanker for that. I, I, I seek to, you know, free myself from that. But it's a reality. I don't have the, the benefit and the privilege of remembering the good old days because there were no good old days for Indigenous people in Australia. And, and I think for me now one of the real challenges in the world is to separate our identities from the memory of wounds, that we don't have to prosecute endlessly the crimes of the past, that we're not prisoners of the past. Nietzsche talks about the man of ressentiment, which is a French word is much more powerful than the English word. It's not just that there is a resentment. It's not just that there is some... Um, you know, some 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 wrong that was done that you harbour some sort of sense of, of of revenge, but your identity gets tied up with that. You are a prisoner of the past. There is a wound that you return to time and time again, not to heal, but to pick apart over and over, and that that can become a toxic identity. This this sense that there is an historical wound that lies at the heart of who you are and that to relinquish that wound is to lose the sense of who you are. I think that really animates a lot of the politics of our age, the sense of grievance, the sense of resentment, um, the sense of victimhood and, and what Nietzsche saw as the slave morality that emerges from that, that the, the greatest weapon you have against your oppressor is the oppressor's crimes and your victimhood. You did me wrong. I am a victim. You owe me and I will never let you get past this. You can never reconcile. You can never move on. That's, um, that's a troubling idea for me. And I don't mean to erase the historical wounds. I don't mean to uh, allow people to slip the noose of, you know, of justice. Of course, justice lies at the heart of any just peace in a society. 
But identity itself cannot be built around the militant nostalgia, the toxicity of vengeance and resentment. I struggle with that all the way Mm. through that book. Well, in the book also, can you talk about this idea that where the dreaming meets enlightenment Mm. and this Mm. idea of thinking about it in... I don't know if hopeful terms yeah. is the wrong word. Oh, no, hope hope, hope is a good word, but it's hope with scars. Yeah. I think we see hope as unblemished. We That's see hope. true. I haven't thought yeah, of that. Yeah, or we see hope as something that washes us clean, you know, that we are cleansed. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the baptism of hope. I, I see hope as a thing with scars. You know, there's a wonderful American Indian pa- uh, fa- uh, parable that, talks of the old hag and the old when the warriors die they meet the old hag in the afterlife and the old hag eats all the wounds off the warriors and cleanses them and those warriors with no wounds she eats out their eyes because they cannot see it's through your scars that you see i love that story because i think hope is a thing with scars and that's the sort of hope that that you know i i look to it's a hope that bears its own its own scars. So you know, I, I, I'm I'm sort of wrestling with a sense there that what what gave birth to the world as we know it, the modern world, modernity, for all its faults, was that that enlightenment. And I see the enlightenment as a philosophy of hope. And there are many enlightenments, of course, you know, there's the French and the Dutch and the British and the German, and they're all very different and informed by different things, and there are different thinkers of the Enlightenment. But if there's a couple of things that emerge from the Enlightenment, for me, that in general terms, it is throwing over authority and autocracy. It is seeing through superstition. It is using your reason it is the quest for freedom and a universality to our humanity, and there's and it is the the arc of of history that delivers you to that point. I think one of the things that that the Enlightenment is built on is a sense of progress, that we move forward through the world and that we improve through moving forward in the world. The dreaming um, is something that particularly anthropologists have seen as something that is frozen in time. I use a phrase that um, the Australian anthropologist William Stanner used in the 1960s, where he called the dreaming, and it's a lovely um, neologism, the every when, the every when, always everywhere, at once. But he also saw that the dreaming and the enlightenment were mutually exclusive. He saw it in terms of the market, you know, and he said that the dreaming and the market cannot coexist. And he saw a very, he had a very doomed view of indigenous, of the indigenous world where the more that we brushed up against modernity, the less, the more fragile we become and the less Aboriginal we became. And ultimately he saw that it would lead to the destruction of that society. But it was a very rigid view of that society. It was a view of that society that could not imagine it in the modern world. It was a relic. It was something that was never going to have what the Greeks called telos, this idea of progress, this idea of a future. And and I really railed against that because that's not my life. Mm. 
I saw my people engaging with the market, albeit, yes, at the, the margins, but my father worked and we worked on the railways and we picked fruit and we, we drove cattle and we worked in sawmills and we, we embraced other ideas and we became Christians and we fought in the wars and we fought for citizenship and we engaged politically. That's not a relic. That's not a people who don't have a telos, a future, a progress. That's not a people who cannot embrace modernity and maintain aspects of their own culture. So the book is my attempt to wrestle with this idea that I am not a product of the every when, that the dreaming sits at the root of my story as an Indigenous person that informs aspects of my spirituality in the way that other traditions inform aspects of the spirituality of those societies. But there is also this exchange of ideas and cultures that that blends us and changes us and opens up the prospect of a future for us. I am not an Aboriginal person as an Aboriginal person would have been in 1770. Uh, you know, I am different. I'm not an Aboriginal person as it would have been in 1950. I am different. But Aboriginal people, like every other people on earth, should have the capacity and should be allowed the potential for that change and to embrace new ideas and not be constantly locked in this in this frozen time where to move beyond that is to lose the sense of who you are in the world. That's a, that's a terrible thing to inflict on people. So I wrestle with that idea that there is a hopefulness in the enlightenment. There is a spirituality in the dreaming that speaks to the depth of antiquity and belonging in this country, that I emerge out of all of those traditions and that I carry the wounds of our history and that my hope is a thing with deep scars. I want to talk about an epiphany you had, and it was in Italy, in the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, yeah. And when you describe in the book looking up at the Sistine Chapel Mm. and seeing you know, that that um, space in between yeah. the outreach fingers. It's almost like everything you're talking about everything. is encapsulated in that it space. Gave me, it gave me a way of seeing the world. It gave me a clarity that I'd never really had before. Um, it gave me a sense of how we are all yearning and reaching and seeking for something. And, and I'm a a religious or spiritual person, you know, have a deep sense of that place of God, whatever you want to call God, in my life. I, I, I do have an abiding sense of that. Maybe it comes out of the years I spent in those Aboriginal mission churches and listening to those those Bible teachings. But I do have a strong sense of that God space in my life. And uh and when I stood in there and I, I uh, the Sistine Chapel and I looked up, it suddenly made sense to me what Michelangelo was telling us and what the world really is about. You know, that that painting of Adam and God and the reaching of Adam and God's fingers reaching for each other and they don't touch. If they touched, it would have been an entirely different story. But in that in that vision, in that space, I saw all of us. That's what we do. We reach for the eternity. We reach for understanding. 
We reach to make sense of our world and we reach for each other. And it's in that space where we don't touch that we all live. It's not in the touching. It's in the space between it. All of our love, all of our poetry, all of our war, our hate, all of those things, all the stories we tell about ourselves are in that space. If you fill that space, there's nothing left for us. And it's in that space, in that reaching for God and not touching God, that inspires us. It inspired, obviously, the art of Michelangelo, but it it, it, it spoke to something really profound to me because it said that we all live with the space inside us, the space between us and God, and the space between us and our fellow human beings. And it's what we bring to that space that's important. It's not the touching. It's what we bring to that space between us. And I always thought it remarkable later when scientists mapped the human genome and they found that 99% of our genetic makeup as human beings is exactly the same. There is more diversity within so-called racial or ethnic populations than there are outside of it. That 99% of our DNA is the same. We are a human species. And it's in that tiny fraction that all of our humanity lives. Our difference, our hate, our love, our war, our art, our politics, all of that lives in that space. And that's what that's what that that painting in the Sistine Chapel is telling us. There is an eternal space between us and God, between us and ourselves and us and our fellow human beings. And that's what we seek. That space is what inspires us. When I'm thinking of you as a young man, and there's also a space between who you are now and Mm. who that young man was, and part of the book and so much of your work also wrestles with, um, you know, who we think we are at a certain point in time. Yeah. And allowing and being, um, I guess, whether, you know, we're all talking about being kind to ourselves now, but whatever that is, an acceptance of change. Uh, In the book, I talk about that. And it was when the full weight of the world began to bear down on me. You know, there's a moment and it would be so trivial to other people. But there was a moment when I was told about who I was and what my place in the world was. And it was in that little town, uh, and it was in the little school in that town. We were the only Aboriginal people in the town, except for a family that lived behind us. There were six Aboriginal kids who were adopted by the Presbyterian minister and his wife who were white. And one of the boys in that family was my age, and we were in the same class together. And we had another little friend in the class, and I would have been, you know, six or seven years old. And I remember so clearly the day when our friend put his arm next to ours, and he looked at us and he said, why are you so black? And I remember at the time just, I knew that we were different. I knew that we were Aboriginal and I had a sense of that sense of being apart. But when someone who is your age, who is in your class, who is your friend, looks at you and sees something different. I, I've never forgotten that moment. And then we went back to 
my friend's house that that night and he told his mother, who was white, he said, you know, this boy at school today asked us why we're so black. And she looked at us and she said, I can, I can picture myself. I am standing there. I'm in the kitchen of the house that he was in. She would make a cake for us almost every day when we got home. And I was standing there with him and this lovely, big-hearted country woman, the preacher's wife, and she said to us, you're not black. You have lovely olive skin. And I think on that day, in that moment, to a young child, to a mo- the world suddenly suddenly bore down on me. We were different. Other people would judge me as different. And then other people would try to deny that difference. And we'd have to answer to that difference forever. That I was what someone deemed black. And that the person who said that was white and never had to ask him any, himself any questions about that. White was normal. He got to set the rules. He got to decide who belonged. And even in the mind of a six or seven-year-old boy, he knew that what he was was normal and what we were was something else. And then this beautiful mother with his adopted Aboriginal child trying to spare us from the hurt of the world, saying, but we're not black at all, we've just got olive skin. That blackness was something to be marked by and to hide from and to deny and to be told that if you're going to live a life you must find a way of answering that question, why are you so black? And that's the question that's hung with me forever. And it started on that day. That's when that innocence of the world is stripped away from you and I've had to answer that question. And I've often had to answer that question to myself. Why are you so black? And are you black at all? And you mentioned that that flush, you know, that feeling of, and you put it so well in the book because it's kind of a a journey of certain mm. feelings of a sting and unknowing, yeah, a tummy, yeah. Then like the flush of shame and yeah. redness, but you have no idea why. And as a child, you only remember the feeling, mm. and you have no you have no con, no words or no. for it. And it's mm. almost like since then you're wrestling with that entire kind of strange, yeah. you know. How to be free. Yeah. Because what that says to you at that moment is you're not free. You're not free. Someone will be able to determine your existence and set the limits of that existence. And every single thing I think I seek is driven by that sense of freedom. What is it to be free? And you can't be free when someone asks you constantly, why are you so black? There's no freedom in that. And this racial construct, you know, this idea that we can divide ourselves into separate races, there is no such thing as racial difference. There is only racism. And racism is the, is the father of race. It gives birth to the idea of race. First, you must have the racist thought that there are people who are below you. And then you give that a name. And then you set up, then you establish laws to control the lives of those people. And then you put them on ships and you ship them to other lands and you put them up for sale and you make them work your fields. That's what racism does. Racism creates race. And I'm just not going to buy into that. 
I'm not going to accept the logic of racism and I'm not going to accept the logic of race, black or white or any of it. I, I want to be free. There was a professor in 2015 who wrote uh, that New York Times piece that you mentioned in ah, the book yes. called Dear White America. Yes, George Yancey. And it, it was so good to read it to be confronted by this white, idea white of... White people need to become unsutured, is what he said. Exactly. Unsutured, to open yourself up to your vulnerability. And I'll quote it here is to give everyone some context. He said, all white people benefit from racism, and this means each in their own way is a racist. Don't seek shelter from your own racism. Practice being vulnerable. And... It was such a good reminder because don't you think sometimes we're in a moment, I mean, me as a privileged white Australian woman, um, of thinking that you're woke, right? Yeah. We're all, we're working so yes. hard to be, yes. you know, say the right things, do the right <laughs> things. It can become suffocating. It really can. And, and dishonest too. And dishonest. And I've had, you know, friends say, I hope you see, you know, Colour. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't I'm not trying to be white. No. Lady. No. You exactly. know, I hope it's a it's a strange thing because on the one hand, liberalism, which is the founding faith of modernity, and something that I cling to very deeply because I believe that within liberalism we have the greatest force to civilize us. That the idea that we can live free of our race, our ethnicity, our histories, that there can be a common sense of ourselves, that that there is a veil of ignorance, as John Rawls talked about, you know, this idea that we can bring us to, 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 uh, to the world a set of values and an ethical framework that isn't bound by our racial or gender or sexual or ethnic or cultural differences. And I love the neutrality of that idea, that liberalism lifts us above our tribalism, and our and our divisions and our separate our separatism, but within liberalism, and this is where liberalism struggles. It struggles to acknowledge that we don't all start at the same place and we don't all come from the same place. Liberalism struggles with the modern world, in all of its diversity, in in all of its cosmopolitanism and globalism, and what were previously homogenous liberal democratic states where the right of the individual can be paramount because every individual is the same and looks the same, suddenly there are other people making ethical claims on the state who have a, a place in that liberal democracy. And it, it unsettles liberal democracy and it unsettles liberals. So on the one hand, you get those liberals who cling to a conservative 17th and 18th century view of liberalism, which is imbued by their whiteness and see the ethical claims of others on the state as being somehow an attack on whiteness or an attack on Western civilization. And then you get the more progressive liberals who in their wokeness imagine that, you know, that they can just smooth out all of those differences and that we can all find a place in that society equally. Well, in fact, neither of those things are true. That liberalism must be able to live with a degree of antagonism, that it can't just be about erasure it can't just be about smoothing out the rough edges. It must be about holding in common it, that, that antagonism and that sense 
of belonging and shared citizenship. And that's a very, very hard thing for liberalism to pull off. And when you apply that to questions of race, you're in a paradox where on the one hand, you want to live in a society where the rights of people are not determined by racial characteristics, where people are not defined by racial characteristics, particularly when those definitions are imposed on people by the hierarchy or the dominant force in that society, which has normally been white. Um, And yet at the same time, while you want that neutrality in, in, in a legal and rights based sense, you also want people to have the right of their own free association, association, culture and history and how they imbue their blackness with those things. So on the one hand, you don't want race to dominate the public space and the ethical state within which we lay claims for our rights. But on the other hand, you want to be able to see the, the individuals and the groups within that society for who and what they are without diminishing or whitewashing who they are. It's a very, very hard thing to pull off. And George Yancey is saying to white people, listen, you need to open yourself up to this idea. Don't be afraid of this idea. In fact, he's probably saying to them, have faith in your liberalism because liberalism can be a big enough idea to hold all of us without the fear and anxiety and shame and blame and guilt that can get in the way of our relationships and without having to erase or whitewash our history and erase people to create some melting pot where we're all just the same. He's really asking a fundamental question of liberal democracy that we struggle with. But there are also struggles on our side. And I say to black people as well, don't allow yourself to be defined by blackness either. I live with a very comfortable idea that, you know, I can be contextually what someone may see as black and culturally and socially and yet live in a world where my wife is not Indigenous and I, I have friends who are not black and, uh, and that I'm a human being in the world as well. So I don't want to be limited or framed around that either. And ultimately, ultimately, for me, a world beyond the idea of race is the perfect world for me. Not colour blind and not post-racial. Post-racial still accepts that we come from a racial place. I'm saying beyond it, no racism that establishes race, beyond the hierarchies, beyond people defining you and putting labels on you and putting you in boxes, beyond all of that. For I am a free-thinking human being to live in the world with all of my complexity and all of my contradiction and to be able to belong freely to other groups of people that allow me to express my humanity. That's ultimately where we want to be. And that is not about erasing people. It is ultimately about the simple act of freedom. That is the promise of the modern world. It's freedom. And we just haven't lived up to it. Well, it's just going back to what you were talking about, hope and having that there there are scars there Mm. and we don't deny them. Mm. And I think our country is in a moment and part of your work is doing this, this winding back, this at least acknowledging the silence, the great Australian silence, and then going, where do we go from here? And having to speak to the silence without picking apart the wound. 
The biggest thing I took away from talking to Stan was how much work I need to do about understanding the country I was born in. And the best way to do that is to start with his memoir and work through his work. And then throughout his books, he gives us signposts and he gives us uh, writers to go and discover for ourselves, which is something I love and I'm ready to go on that journey. So I'll keep you posted. Um, I'd love to hear what you think and particularly what books have helped shape your understanding of where you're from. Uh, let me know what they are at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.